0: This episode is a re-aired episode of Yours Truly being interviewed by Steph Lowe from The Natural Nutritionist on her podcast. Steph and I explore the topic of thyroid nodules, something that I have been working with more recently in clinic. Thyroid nodules are far more common than we think, but I believe that we miss them a lot due largely to difficulties in obtaining correct testing. In this episode, we cover the differences between hot and cold nodules. We also cover when iodine should and shouldn't be used. We cover the role of insulin and metabolic health in thyroid nodules, as well as both conventional and nutraceutical treatment options. If you are currently wanting to get personalized advice to support you with your nutrition and hormones, the best place to start is for you to book in a complimentary consultation. In this 15-minute consultation, we will discuss your current health goals, what you can expect from consultations, and we cover any questions that you may have. If you're happy to go ahead, we book in a time for your initial consultation, but equally, if you need a little time to think about it, that is perfectly okay too. To book in a complimentary consultation, simply head over to selenedouglas.com forward slash links and navigate to the book section. Alternatively, you will also find the booking link in the show notes on this episode. We hope to meet you very soon.
1: Hi, Selene. Welcome back to the show. Thanks again for having me, Steph. Always a pleasure. Oh, I know. This topic is, yeah, a big one. Obviously, we've had you on the show more recently to talk about the thyroid, and it's a really important topic that has a lot of sort of different subsections to it. And so I wanted to make sure that we gave, I guess, justice to looking at thyroid nodules. And so what what do you see in terms of, I guess, if we start from the beginning when a client comes to you with maybe Um, having had their thyroid tested, like just to set the scene, what do you normally see having been looked at and then potentially what's missing?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say most commonly TSH is going to be looked at, which is that thyroid stimulating hormone. And like we talked about uh, on the last episode, more frequently we are seeing antibodies being tested as well, particularly if that client maybe has had a bit more information around how to have that discussion with their GP or their doctor. Um, but very commonly thyroid hormones, so T4 and T3 won't be done. And it is also quite, I'm going to say, still uncommon for any antibodies to be tested mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then I guess specific for today's um conversation it's very rare for any kind of imaging to be done on the mm. thyroid um which would pick up um the prevalence of nodules on the thyroid
1: yeah so what how do you define like or when you think about a nodule how do you mm. think about that sort of progression Like in terms of how would I explain that to a client? Yeah, like what's happening to the thyroid, like the cells are obviously Mm -hmm. becoming Mm -hmm. what we call hyperplastic and forming like a a lump in the thyroid, which we know is at the base of the sort of neck region.
0: Yep. Um, So I think about them as basically being a growth on the thyroid or an area um, of malfunctioning in those cells. Um, And we've got two main different types of nodules. So hot or cold, and we'll obviously get into this more today and differentiating between the two and what the differences are. Um, But cold nodules are basically um, an area of the gland that isn't functioning efficiently. It's what's called hypo-functioning. So it's basically um, not It's underactive, essentially, Mm. if we think about it like that it's an underactive pocket of the gland, um, whereas the hot nodules um, are the opposite to that. So they're hyper-functioning and they have become dysregulated. So they're no longer sort of responding to TSH or thyroid-stimulating hormone and they've become what's autonomous. They're basically doing their own thing um, and making thyroid hormone as they see fit. Versus waiting from that signalling from the brain,
1: yeah, fascinating. I really want to dive into that with you. Just to kind of put it into context, before we go on to prevalence, Mm -hmm. can you tell the story about the client and what symptom she was experiencing? Because I hear this quite a bit. Yes, definitely. So this happened twice now, but most recently
0: was just a couple of weeks ago. I had a very young female client, so she was she's around twenty four. Um, and one of the, well, she had a collection of symptoms, but one of the symptoms, um, I guess that initiated me to push her to go and ask for an ultrasound was that she was complaining of sort of pressure in her throat. Mm -hmm. And the way that I think about this sensation is, you know, when you might feel anxious or upset and you get that lump in your throat, like, you're about to cry, Mm. Um, that's sort of the sensation that she was explaining, which can also feel like anxiety too. Um, But she was saying, you know, I've just, it feels different. I've never sort of had this before. Um, And I said, great, well, we'll go and we'll get some different um, blood tests done to look at your thyroid, but I'd also really like you to actually ask for an ultrasound um, because if you're experiencing that pressure in your throat then we do want to check for the presence of nodules because basically uh, the pressure in there or that sensation of a lump being in there is because the growth has become so large that mm. it's actually starting. You you can feel it now, right? You, you can also see it. it.
1: Could you see it yes. on her?
0: I couldn't, but again, okay. we're Zoom. So, you know, yeah. maybe if we had have been face-to-face, I could have, but um, I guess that's, you know, We listen to our clients um, and so, uh,
1: yeah, I just heard her. (laughs) Yeah, I just thought that symptom was really interesting because like of the anxiety picture. Mm. Yeah, I think that's an absolute, probably, you know, that I work through that principle of Occam's razor. So what's the easiest explanation? Mm. Most people would say, yeah, you're more likely to be anxious than to think a 24-year-old has a quite large nodule, but this is where we can miss the actual driver of the symptom or the root cause with further investigation if we're not listening or if we're not looking at our clients because I've certainly met people where the nodule, you can't miss it. It's very visible on the neck. And then just one more comment with the, um, the secondary symptom being dysphagia or trouble swallowing, I've met people who have been told to take SOMAC or zolof, so a proton pump inhibitor, It's nothing to do with their acid, not to mention my thoughts around PPIs in general, which I'm very open about. How crazy is that? You're not having trouble swallowing because of, you know, increased acid in your stomach anyway, but we're missing the forest for the trees. So Mm -hmm. I think it's important for, you know, people tuning in, just to. that's not the only symptom, of course. We'll, We'll discuss what might be picked up from a TFT, a thyroid function test. But let's pay attention to these other symptoms because that definitely shows you, in this case, like, yeah, a quite a big progression of a yeah. condition that's yeah. otherwise going to go untouched in a 24-year-old who might be missed by the system per se. Yep,
0: yeah, definitely. And I guess for context as well, leading up to this appointment, so the month or so before she'd had... Uh, some extremely stressful things happen in her life and when she'd gone she'd actually presented initially first to the emergency room when she was having this sort of symptom and she was also uh, getting sort of some heartburn sort of feelings and the the doctor there had also said to her look it's probably just reflux because of the stress that you've been experiencing you know if you're still getting it in a few days, go and see your doctor and, you know, off you go and go home. Um, and the doctor who she'd seen had also said, well, let's go and get you checked for H pylori because maybe you've got, you know, some sort of infection, um, that's causing reflux. So she did have a little bit of that sort of Bernie feeling, mm-hmm. but the lump in the throat, again, I think we just always need to be thinking about, you know, what could it be and not just thinking. I guess it's this one simple explanation. We've sort of got to take that holistic view of someone. Um, and I think with anxiety, um, you know, potentially mirroring that just really talking to the client about, well, does it feel like I'm sure you've experienced this before? Does it feel different now? Uh, and yeah, in this case it did. So I, I asked her to go and get that ultrasound done. She did get a lot of resistance from her GP requesting that, um, the GP said to her, you're too young to have thyroid issues. It's not your thyroid. Um, didn't want to do the test. Uh, like and she did. Me. <clears throat> yeah. So she did mm. fight sort of tooth and nail to get it. Um, and. She had the ultrasound done first and this is where um, nodules were picked up and there was one actually that um, was found to have calcified. So she's now been sent away for an FNA, which is basically a fine needle biopsy of um, that piece of tissue to check if it is malignant or not. So we're still waiting on those results. Um, But her thyroid function sort of tests that were ordered, again, (laughs) the full thyroid panel wasn't approved, Mm -hmm. um, which I just, again, blows my mind that we would be picking up nodules, but not happy to approve a full thyroid panel. But anyway, um, we got TSH and then the antibodies. So antibodies were very unremarkable. I believe her globulin might've been 28 and then the peroxidase antibody was like 1.3. So, you know, pretty classic pretty yeah. classic. And then TSH was only 1.3. So,
1: <gasps> see, this is where, how many times do you see a normal TSH? And that's even normal for us, right? Mm. To clarify yep. in terms of what's a functional range, the dismissing, it just, I find so many area areas of women's health more and more challenging, but the thyroid is seem, seemingly to be like top of the list in terms of mismanagement at the moment because she could have gone, imagine if she didn't come to see you. Yeah. So she's 24, will obviously know what the full story is with the FNA results, but, you know, the progression of this and the irreversible damage that can be done, mm. I think we all need to be just paying out of pocket for a full thyroid panel and making sure we've got, you know, more information if we are symptomatic, because we've got to be proactive or this can become like a lifelong condition to try and navigate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thankful as well that in this situation the doctor would only actually approve one after the other that she got the ultrasound first because yeah. I can nearly guarantee that if there was you know the thyroid results that were ordered had have come back first, you would have gone, no need for an ultrasound, right? Yeah, there's no um, problems with your there's T4 no three. Yeah. So I'm very glad that it, it did happen in that order. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's just, you know, your body better than anyone else, right? Better than us, better than your mm. doctor, better than any other practitioner. Um, so if you're getting symptoms, you know, it needs to investigate it thoroughly.
1: Just one more question on this case. Yes. But did do you have any other TSH um, data for her, like previous labs? No, mm. no. I've got to talk to you about this when you get some more information (laughs) because obviously we're not seeing the typical TFT picture Mm. of really either of the hot or cold nodules Mm. yet. Mm -hmm. So only time will tell. All right, let's go back to prevalence. So um, what do you know about the prevalence of thyroid nodules?
0: It's very common, (laughs) shockingly common, in fact. Um, So we don't have a lot of data in or or I guess... um, concrete data in younger people. But I think, again, this example that I've just explained mm. being, uh, I guess, explains why because it's hard to get that information. But mm. at least in um, the over 60s in Australia, it's one in two um, have some mm. kind of nodular abnormality, which is massive, like 50% of yeah, the population huge. is yeah. huge. Um, and interestingly nodules are far more common than conditions like Hashimoto's and graves. And I think we talk about these so much more, um, and it seems that nodules are becoming more and more common. And I guess that also sort of begs a bigger question as to why that's the case
1: yeah it's fascinating like i really can't wait for us to have more updated prevalence data but obviously we have to be screening a lot more of the younger population and if all doctors think quote unquote you don't have a thyroid problem you're too young then we're not going to have data but i have looked at some um stats around sort of 6.4 percent of women in countries where there's bigger issues around certain nutrient depletion which we'll talk about um it could even be as high as 35 percent that's crazy which is that's, that's huge, yeah. That, that's way higher than Hashimoto's, right? And, again, it would be way higher if we were testing properly. That's frightening. Imagine if we were screening. I mean, we can't screen everyone. I get the limitations of the medical system. But, yeah, that's going to be really interesting to see in time, hopefully with increased awareness and conversations like this and um, increased advocacy of our, of our clients that we will get some more relevant data on prevalence, which will then feed back into the system of being kind of allowed to screen more people and Mm. support rather than just let it go until there's a real issue in 10, 15 years time, which we see all too often.
0: Which is that when you kind of look at the treatment, um, which we can get into when we talk about what we would be doing for hot or Mm. cold nodules, but when you do look at the... um, the sort of standard conventional recommendations around treatment, it's basically like if it's bad enough, you know, radioactive iodine therapy or removal or let's wait another 12 months and not do anything else. So, um,
1: (laughs) yeah. I I just can't imagine being in that position where all you're offered is radioactive therapy or removal of your thyroid. Like I do not, like I really empathise with someone who's in that position, but obviously there's a lot more that can be done, which is the big going to be the outcome of our conversation today. So let's go back to Cole V hot. We'll start with Cole. What's the frequency in terms of the whole sort of stat, the unknown stat of nodules in total?
0: Yep, yep. So cold is far more prevalent. Ninety um, percent of all nodules are going to be cold. So it's you know far more common um, that this is going to be the issue. And they're as I said, hypo-functioning cells. So basically, um, underactivity of the gland or pockets of underactivity where these nodules are present, um, whereas hot um, is far less common, so that 10%, um, and that's a an area of hyper-functioning where these cells are, um, you know, doing their own thing and basically overproducing um, our thyroid hormones.
1: Mm. And hypo is going to be most people, like I don't know about your stats in clinic, but as a general rule, I would probably see 90 or 95% subclinical hypothyroidism. So normally high TSH, which is that inverse relationship to showing you that you've got at least a subclinically low thyroid. So this is making a lot of sense in terms of the bigger picture. Um, Obviously, this type is more dominant in younger patients. I don't work with a lot of over 60, like you said, Mm -hmm. with the prevalence rate that we do have. But that's just... Yeah, really interesting for me to think as well, the number of people that have even that subclinical, so high TSH, um, who may also have a nodule.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: Mm. yeah. Massive.
0: (laughs) So what's the primary cause? Um, So initially it was thought that the primary cause was iodine deficiency and I think it still is in a lot of cases, mm. um, but then now it's sort of also looked at that there's potentially uh, basically metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance being this um, maybe additional or instead of, you know, maybe someone doesn't have iodine deficiency but they have insulin resistance and this is actually um, what's causing the um, the nodules, um, or, you know, maybe they have both.
1: Okay, so let's talk about them separately. Obviously, yeah. I'm sure there's cases, yeah, where there is both, um, and especially in Australia. So with with iodine, like mm-hmm. I often think about the East Coast and our sort of chronic deficiency where I live being the worst in Tasmania, um, and then I think about how little or how very sort of low number of clients that have ever come to me with having already done an iodine test and how, again, that's often a missing piece of the puzzle. How do you know if you have an iodine deficiency, if you haven't done a test? And then equally, I want to hear, like, let's talk about how intricate iodine is because we've both got a couple of examples that I think would be really useful to share as to sort of why Mm -hmm. we tread really careful with this particular nutrient as well.
0: Yep. Um, so it is very, very common. I mean, mm. I would say more often than not, if I am doing Iodine testing, it is coming back low. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not a test that is easy to get done via Medicare. So it is very commonly paid for out of pocket. Um, We would use companies like iScreen. Um, Other options are if you know your GP or doctor has actually approved additional testing, maybe they're happy to write it on there and you just pay directly at the Mm -hmm. Path Lab. So that's the other way that we would look at that. Um, the other thing, I guess, just on the lab side of things is that different labs have different ways of interpreting iodine testing as well. So that's something that a lot of people don't actually know about. And that's really important. Um, there's a conversion that needs to happen when we're looking at that urine testing to actually make the result accurate Mm. and not all labs will perform the, um, calculation for us. So that can greatly change the, Outcome of that person's results. So that's really important um, that you are either using a lab that provides corrected iodine or working mm-hmm. with someone who can calculate that for you to get that accurate result. Um, but it's very, very common. Symptomatically, I think for women, one of the most common cycle symptoms would be breast tenderness, breast mm-hmm. tenderness, lumpiness. Um, whenever I see that, I am thinking about iodine deficiency. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at if we do have something like, um, you know, thyroid results, we're thinking about that subclinical, so low, low T4, maybe low T3 as well. And then that higher TSH, um, and in those instances, I would always be looking at an, if there's anything out with the thyroid, I'm looking at iodine. I want to know where it's Mm -hmm. at, um, And I think in general, I just like to know where it's at, particularly if I can see from someone's sort of overall dietary intake that that's not a nutrient they would be consuming a lot of, which is very common.
1: Yeah, very common. So one, I know I say this on the show all the time, but just for today's convo, so Australia is notoriously known to be like the soil deficiency in iodine, East Coast, Tasmania being the worst, then the government mandated the fortification of breads and cereals, except if you're not eating breads and cereals, then you're not getting that iodized salt. Not that I think that's the best form of iodine, yes. but it is how <laughs> a lot of people are accidentally avoiding a deficiency. Mm-hmm. Then, equally, you're not, our clients, as a general rule, aren't eating like more of those traditional Japanese foods where we find the high iodine foods. So, it is actually probably a really common nutrient to not be tracking and it's easy Mm. to see when you're having enough iron or I think about zinc and B12 being easy to visualise on a plate and other nutrients become a lot more obvious. But iodine is one that I think is is sort of the forgotten nutrient really, especially Mm. in the thyroid space. My dream is that we're going to have urinary iodine approved for anyone, at least if they've got a bit of a subclinical TFT at, at, at the very least. Um, but equally, I don't want anyone to go out and start taking iodine if you haven't been tested this again is yeah one to clarify the importance of testing but to most importantly to respect how intricate your levels are the sort of Goldilocks scenario of certainly not too little, but certainly not too much.
0: Yes, definitely. So it is a nutrient that we can overdo. And I always say to my clients, if we are working with their low iodine to correct it, and maybe we are using supplements because we want to provide a therapeutic dose and we want to know how much they're getting. I explain to them all the iodine foods and I'm like, don't go and overdo it with this mm. foods. Like don't go away from this consultation and start Googling iodine rich foods. And then bulk up on all of these things because you will end up overdoing it. And that's actually where we would see the transition from cold potentially to hot nodules. So um, that can be that change. That's actually all hot nodules start out cold and it can be iodine deficiency. And then, uh, you know, a huge um, sort of jump up in iodine intake can actually trigger um, that change from cold to hot. And I guess another issue I think with the food fortification that I'd like to mention as well is just that with our food sources of iodine like kelp, um, dulse flakes, all these Mm. things, they have other, you know, it's food found the way it's supposed to be found. We have iodine but then we have selenium which we know is really protective for the thyroid gland and helps to sort of counteract any of the inflammation that iodine could pose Um, whereas when we're consuming either, you know, fortified foods that contain iodine. We've essentially isolated what we think is a nutrient issue, Mm -hmm. put a whole bunch of it in food, but ignored all of the other cofactors like selenium and zinc that we would find in a food naturally high in iodine. So we've kind of ignored nature in that sense. And then if you were to kind of throw on top, maybe uh, an isolated iodine supplement, I think that's where you can really run into issues.
1: Yeah, I can see how this would happen. I mean, imagine if if you had been told you had a cold nodule mm. and you were equally told that the treatment was iodine and then you just went on taking iodine without a test. Uh, like yeah. To me, it's no a no-brainer that you could possibly end up with hot because it's not being managed closely enough. So that's mm. very important in terms of the ongoing management and, and retesting for iodine sufficiency. And then I just wanted to share um, a couple of anecdotes that, one speaks to what you were saying. So, I have one client now who I'm working with who was taking isolated, isolated iodine. So, you know, not with that beautiful balance of the other cofactors that you mentioned. And unfortunately, she has given herself accidentally major TSH suppression. So, it's undetectable via the assay and has. Not that she has antibodies, but has symptoms of Graves' disease. So, a very overactive thi- thyroid, um, heart palpitations, anxiety, mm-hmm. extreme weight loss, like, you know, just everything of an overfunctioning body. And all the doctors have been able to offer her uh, beta blockers. And that to me is just a really fascinating case study and a really good reminder of please don't go and take iodine for whatever shedding protocol you found online or for whatever you've been told. You need to do a urinary test corrected for creatinine, which takes away the impact of the concentration of the urine, like which wee of the morning is it? Um, That situation is balanced out. And then equally, retest in three months because it's actually not that hard to resolve. Like most of the time I can, well, I don't know about you, but I can turn mm. around an iodine deficiency in three months. It's quite quick, And yeah. then you put that down, like you take it off the list as being a, a nutrient driver anymore. And then just last anecdote mm. is iodine is found in common supplements with selenium, with zinc, with vitamin D, but a therapeutic dose is a therapeutic dose. So please don't take a... Prenatal, and then another superfood blend for pregnancy or breastfeeding mothers and then add another little protein Mm. shake number that's got more iodine in it because unfortunately I have seen another example where those three um, combinations of supplements and foods did create quite a severe postpartum iodine excess picture with a very low TSH, she just thought she was feeling anxious because she's a new mum, and that could be could have been a very easy um, explanation. Wasn't overly symptomatic like the other client that I mentioned and those women that send themselves off to ER. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally, like a lot of this could be avoided if we're just taking a bit more time to understand iodine, and then equally not overdoing supplements and foods, and and you know going to the extreme rather than the grey, the balanced approach, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it is definitely a nutrient that you can overdo um, and I think, again, that's where either working with a practitioner or like understanding what is in what you're taking Mm -hmm. um, is really, really important.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I just wanted to be really clear on that because I'd hate for anyone listening to start taking too much iodine and, you know, I think I've made my point. So moving on. So what about, what else do you see in, in cold nodules or where would you like to kind of move to next?
0: Well, I think the other thing that's really important outside of iodine is Mm -hmm. metabolic health and where we Mm -hmm. would see, um, basically insulin resistance driving, Um, That higher TSH. So essentially in very simple terms, I guess like the more fat tissue that is available, the higher the amount of um, T3 that your body is going to need to make or the thyroid is going to need to make in order to kind of service this additional mass. Um, and in response to this sort of increase in T in T3 that's required, your pituitary is just going to be um, stimulating sim- more TSH um, and so stimulating more growth in that thyroid gland. And then I guess in addition to this with insulin resistance um, being present, we've got an increase in IGF one. Um, and that also actually stimulates growth within the gland Mm -hmm. as well. So you've kind of got, Yeah. yeah, yeah. You've got that kind of fuel on the fire happening there. And I think it's really interesting when you think about, you know, the prevalence of metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance in people, and the presence or increasing prevalence of these nodules, despite the fact that we do have huge amounts of iodine fortification in foods. So, you know, it's been identified that there's this sort of widespread or worldwide iodine deficiency. And whilst, of course, we don't recommend consuming those fortified foods anyway, um, largely the population could be technically consuming enough iodine, right, but we're not seeing a decrease in the prevalence of these thyroid issues. So is a huge part of the problem actually our metabolic health?
1: Probably. When we look at the Western (laughs) world, that makes a lot more sense. What about other sort of environmental impacts like, dietary goitrogens, I always think about like raw mm. cruciferous vegetables when I hear that word, or even like EDCs, like endocrine disrupting chemicals. Like there's obviously a bigger picture yeah. here that does sure. need to be considered. Yeah. Definitely.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't have the stats around that, but I don't think we can, I mean, you know, I'm always <laughs> thinking like, I don't think I need to look at research to realize that, you know, spraying ev- our body in chemicals and mm. inhaling it every day, obviously isn't going to be the best thing for our health. And it does impact our endocrine system as a whole.
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's really relevant. Like I, I do feel like there's a much greater kind of awareness and and um, funding for research into EDCs, and even the most mm. careful person who lives completely non-tox oh. can't not be exposed yeah. to those chemicals in today's society. Especially when you're living um, regionally and people are spraying your front lawn, basically, or the nature strip out the front of your house, right? Yeah. We've, we've we've got our hands tied in some areas, but equally, sure. those you know those toxins in, found in the home are definitely areas that we could all tidy up on, I'm sure. Like it's just something that we can continue to fine-tune to that there's less of an impact, like eating whole foods and not having dysregulated metabolic health would make a big difference, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, there's a lot that we can do. As you said, we're going to be like we live on the beach here and they go and Mm. spray the sand dunes and things like that. Um, And, yeah, it always... You can see the discoloration in there. And I'm always really careful with our dog not to let her mm. like go up in there because she would go away and walk in that and then like chew her paws and things like that. So God knows what that does to her. Um very true. Yeah. And I think about how they spray like kids' parks and stuff mm. like that. Like it's uh, yeah, anyway.
1: That's <laughs> we digress. We digress. That is there a are bit things of a mind that you field. sort of can't think about some days though, right? As a parent or, or yeah. a parent to be like I, not that I sort of don't want to think about it because we've got to take action, but it could be, yeah, uh, I don't want to overwhelm anyone tuning in today. You've got to control the mm. controllables to a degree. Definitely.
0: I think with the insulin side of things, like obviously, as I know you would do the same, we're probably going to be testing those things anyway, and mm. the majority of our clients, and we're going to, in a proper intake, be sort of identifying whether that's part of the issue for you. Um, More often than not, I am requesting a fasting insulin anyway. So I do pick up those sorts of issues. And I guess that's where taking that holistic view of what's going on for your client is really important because you'll pick up things like insulin resistance at the start.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's unlikely a client is going to come to you because they actually have a thyroid nodule, right, because we're not screening for anyone. They're probably not going to know about it, although this conversation will hopefully change that. But up until now, they're probably going to come to you with a symptom. Like if they've got hypothyroidism, they might already be putting on weight with no change to intake or exercise. Um, or, Or they might actually come to you for weight loss. And then Mm -hmm. you're working on the driver anyway. So, Mm -hmm. gosh, how good is whole food, right? Because you're already going to be helping improve their insulin sensitivity via the nutrients that they eat and the foods that they don't eat or they Mm minimise. And then that will be helping their weight loss, which will take that fat mass down, which then rebalances that pituitary thyroid access. Like it's beautiful how it can all come back into balance when you start with whole food and then go a little bit deeper into micronutrients from there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we can talk about some of those micronutrients as well. So obviously Mm. with cold nodules, um, we're going to want to look at your iodine for sure. Or if Mm. any thyroid issue, we're going to want to look at your iodine and, um, decide what we need to do about that. But the main thing there is like iodine sufficiency, not excess. We're not Mm. going wild with all the iodine foods and supplements. Um, then the other nutrient that has been found to be really beneficial for cold nodules is zinc. Yeah. So um, zinc, the, basically the lower your zinc, the larger the mass in the gland. So, mm-hmm. again, we're not just kind of going, oh, you've got an issue with your thyroid, let's throw some zinc in there. We're actually going to test where, <laughs> where your zinc is at um, and make informed decisions about, you know, is zinc actually a nutrient that's going to be beneficial in this situation, right? Because you might not have a zinc deficiency.
1: Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's really important too. We're not kind of going, you know, everyone with the cold nodules needs all of these particular things. We're actually going, are there cold nodules present? Yes, no, okay, yes. Now let's actually look at what deficiencies are present so we can work out what this person needs, not what all people, you know, not what all the things that could work might be
1: and kind of just throwing spaghetti at a wall and hoping it works out. Six, yeah. I think about that a lot when we talk about you and I, like even just online talking about like, the cofactors you need for mm-hmm. your thyroid hormones. Like, yes, you need those, but no, you probably don't need to focus on all of those because you. Might, it's more than likely you have a few adequacies and then some inadequacies and they become mm-hmm. the areas that you focus on.
0: Yep, definitely. And then the other one, we talked about this a lot last time, was mm, selenium. Um, nutrient. <laughs> yes, it is. And again, like I'd say that's a nutrient where people would have no idea how much they're actually intaking Ever. per day. Um, and that is one I like to definitely supplement Um, in thyroid issues. And again, I would be going kind of, you know, don't overdo it on the Brazil nuts. Mm. Let's use a supplement in this particular instant. Um, but that's also um found to um basically selenium deficiency is found even to cause i guess fibrocystic areas within the gland as well so correcting that is going to help um reduce the mass there um and then again anytime i'm looking at iodine supplementation i would always be including selenium um the other one that's found to be helpful is inositol, myoinositol, um, which is like basically a B vitamin. Uh, or it's similar to a B vitamin, Um, and that's found to help reduce nodular size. Again, that would be found from really from a supplement, like we can get it from foods, but I would be supplementing.
1: Yeah, I'm really curious. I mean, obviously there's a link here with inositol being incredible for um, improving insulin sensitivity Mm -hmm. at the receptor for that communication of insulin. Um, Of course, that's going to be helpful, which is why, of course, the whole Mm -hmm. food would be where i would start of course and then i think about you know magnesium and chromium and all those sort of blood sugar balancing nutrients that we could use as like a natural metformin or Mm -hmm. or, um, insulin resistance, anti-insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity kind of approach
0: yeah yeah definitely um yeah, I think the combination of those th- things together is incredible, but equally looking at someone's test results to identify, you know, do they
1: actually need the zinc? Do they actually yeah. need... Um, well, is insulin even relevant? Because it would be for everyone. Yeah. For sure, for sure. I mean, it would be probably not in our clients because I feel like I've got a bit of a echo chamber of people who are already kind of to a degree eating real food. And yep. I, I actually don't often see super high insulin these days, which mm. is a function of, of my clients, but I'd be... It'd be more common for me to see iron deficiency these days.
0: Yeah, I still get quite a bit of insulin resistance. I'd say it's both. I um Mm. I am still requesting it a lot and I yeah, do still have quite a lot of high,
1: high
0: results. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm I um unfortunately find that it's one that's often rejected. So We're back to square one.
0: (laughs) I know. And I often find that, you know, if something like just a bit of a side tangent, but HBA1C even sometimes not sensitive enough to pick up issues because, um, you know, I'll obviously take into account someone's dietary history and, you know, what their Basically, the proper intake and look at the HBA1C and kind of go, no, we <laughs> need to see insulin right because it can look really, really good sometimes, and the insulin's still going to be high. Mm.
1: Oh, I think that's the missing piece of the puzzle for a lot of people. Like, mm. if you have a HBA1C of five point three, you could easily be told, "Oh, keep going with your carbohydrate mm. intake, no change." It's fine. To have an insulin of nine or seventeen, even sometimes, is like for many women that I've worked with in the past has been like such a sigh of relief. Oh, like, you know, mm. is, I'm not going crazy. I'm not, you know, there's a reason why I can't lose weight or why I've got this blood sugar dysregulation or whatever it might be. Like yeah. the test that I think should be done more often. Yeah. Again, listening to the client. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Anything else on cold or do you want to move over and just do the contrast for hot yeah. not? Let's move over and talk about mm-hmm. hot.
0: So they're obviously far less common. Mm. Um, and the main thing to understand, I guess, is that they start cold and then they can switch to hot. Um, the main difference here is that the, the, you know, the symptom presentation is quite different with hot. It's more that hyper functioning. So, um, anxiety, um, trouble sleeping overall feeling agitated. So again, things you're might not actually associate mm. to thyroid function, right? These symptoms could very easily be passed off as a lot going on at work or, you know, life. Mm. <laughs> um, and I guess the main way that hot nodules would differ to Graves um, onset, uh, which is the autoimmune hyperthyroidism, would be that Graves will come on like quite hard and fast. Um, whereas nodules typically will be more of a slow burn. So um, they've got to people, grow, right? Mm. Yeah, they've got to grow, and often people with graves is kind of like, you know, maybe there were some symptoms, but it's like overnight they went to kind of like night sweats and mm. like dropping weight, and um, yeah, it's it's a lot more sort of extreme in the presentation and urgent, whereas with nodules, it's it's a lot more um, I guess sort gradual. of un yeah. yeah gradual under the surface, mm. um. And then in terms of the uh, I guess, blood tests that we would be looking at um, for hot nodules, typically what we're gonna see is um suppression of TSH, so really, really low TSH. Um, and maybe there's some antibodies there, but they're typically not going to be super elevated because it's not graves. And I guess the other thing is, you know, maybe it's both. It's that's possible yeah. too. Um, but the other thing that I guess the main thing with the hot nodules is that the T3, um, so the main active thyroid hormone is, is being overproduced for the body. And that's actually what's causing those symptoms that I mentioned, like the anxiety and the trouble sleeping and mm. all of that. Um, and so TSH, that thyroid stimulating hormone is down regulated because the brain is kind of going like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. There's plenty of um, T3 available. Let's take our foot sort of off the gas and and down regulate that function. But because these cells have become autonomous, they're sort of doing their own thing and they're ignoring that signaling from the brain.
1: Yeah. I'd love to look at some data as to how high a T3 can Mm. get in this instance. That's fascinating to me. Obviously a small percentage, like we said, of of nodules in general, but um, yeah, just that's amazing to think about. At least, at least if it is a bit more extreme, it's going to get picked up. But I yeah. know that at least for some that the elevation in T3 can be subtle. So yeah. that's where it p- could possibly be missed. For but sure. again, the TSH range, even the bottom end of the reference range in some labs is pretty low. Like it's 4, 0.4 sometimes. Yeah, yeah. very yeah. low. Um, anyway. Interesting. Totally different picture. So what's the sort of situation with iodine? You mentioned obviously the excess, so that's someone that's continued taking a supplement, potentially kelp and
0: (laughs) all the things. And I Mm. often think about, you know, maybe clients that have been picked up or they they've either kind of like you know, self-diagnosed or had bloods done to pick up low thyroid function have then gone away and done maybe a bit of a Google about what they do for low thyroid function and gone ham on the iodine Mm. because it's the supplement or the nutrient that's talked about. Um, which I'm sure happens so often, right? Mm. And mm. then they're actually sort of causing this secondary issue. So in terms of um, what we would be looking at in terms of treatment options for these hot nodules, it's no iodine at all, so completely um, opposite to the cold. Um, and then we can look at um, basically therapeutic um, or even dietary goitrogens to sort of block um, that production of um, of iodine into the gland. And so that would be looking at even things like, um, your cruciferous vegetables. Um, I know a supplement that's often recommended is cosetin. Um, and then also even maybe some good quality soy products and things like that as well.
1: Yeah. 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 There's a lot that can be done. I think it's interesting. Quasitin, quasitin for those listening. I said yeah. Just I'm never sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's obviously really become quite big in the last couple of years and there are lots of um, creative ways of saying it. Yes, <laughs>
0: definitely.
1: Um, and then the other supplement just quickly is
0: carnitine. Mm. So yeah. carnitine can actually um, not necessarily affect the production of T3, but it can block the receptor uptake. So that can, I guess, help to buffer some of the, the actual, the symptoms. Um, and, and I guess you would be using those things altogether, not necessarily, um, you know, just using something like carnitine.
1: Yeah. I do wonder about that because it's easy to get again, to look at, you know, well, okay, what's the list of things that mm. can improve hot, just like mm. I see women who are working on their fertility, and they get given 30 supplements, and it's including everything quality. that's ever. <laughs> yeah, it includes everything that's ever been studied. For egg it drives me crazy. Like, you know, similar with hot nodules. Like, let's just calm it down and 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 take a slow and steady approach to reversing a condition that was actually created from um, an excessive approach in the first place. So, learning yep. from that. I think
0: definitely. And retesting Mm -hmm. as well. That's where a retesting timeline is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not just kind of going to detect an issue and then implement some sort of dietary and supplement strategy and then set and forget and do that for the rest of your life. Like it's Mm -hmm. obviously really important. Um, And I think with thyroid, I'm always, um, recommending you know earlier testing than what I might do for some standard bloods because um it is a gland i think that's really sensitive and we can shift things really really quickly
1: absolutely agree and i do think that um in the initial phases i think adequate testing and then it will probably be something to keep on your radar for life, but you yep. get to the point where hopefully annual testing is all you need just to dial in and, and make sure that, you know, the conditions don't return to what the root cause was in the yep. first place. Yeah. For sure. I've loved this conversation. Me too. Oh, thank you so
0: much. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, so good. So good. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot um, and I look forward to having on the show again in the near future. Sounds good
0: thank you for listening to this episode of holistic
1: health chats if you enjoyed this episode
0: i would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in itunes as this allows me to help more women just like you holistic health chats is not intended to replace medical advice so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to celebouglas.com forward slash book for more information.